Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, an MSNBC legal analyst, the author of The Watergate Girl, and I was also a Biden delegate. Today, in honor of our interview with a very strong proponent of gun safety laws, I'm wearing an anti-gun Jill's pin. And uh, I hope the message is made clear to all of our audience about where we stand on this issue. From voting rights to climate change to gun safety, our country has many problems to solve and laws to pass. But with a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate, combined with a Republican Party that relentlessly obstructs key pieces of legislation from passing, many question if it is possible that any of President Biden's agenda will pass unless the Democrats address the filibuster question. Others question whether the legislative proposals from Democrats are bold enough to meet the challenges of the moment if they do pass. Today, we welcome Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut to talk about all of this. He is an outspoken advocate on gun safety, reforming democracy, and eliminating the filibuster. Senator Murphy sits on the Appropriations, Foreign Relations, and Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committees. Before becoming a U.S. Senator, Senator Murphy served in the U.S. House, and then, before that, as a member of both chambers of the Connecticut uh, General Assembly. He is also the author of the book, The Violence Inside Us, A Brief History of Ongoing American Tragedy. Senator Murphy, we are thrilled to have you here, especially given how busy your schedule in the Senate is this week. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So let's um, start by talking about an issue that I know you've been a fierce advocate for, gun safety. Um, You wrote a book on this exact topic, so you're a great expert to talk to our audience about what you think is causing um, the gun violence in America and whether or not we're, I think, treating the problem and the solution effectively. So maybe to begin, uh, what do you think is causing the gun violence epidemic in America? You know, Jill and I, we live in Chicago, which experiences shootings daily, and we've seen countless mass shootings this year alone. So what do you think is going on here? Yeah, probably a bigger topic than we can cover, you know, in, in a short podcast. Um, but I uh, did write a book on this topic, and it, and it took me 300 pages to come to that conclusion. Um, and my conclusion is that there isn't one explanation for why America is a much more violent place than any other high-income nation, nor is there one simple reason as to why you've seen an increase in violence this summer. Um, the, the, the summary of the case I make is that there are three main factors that drives America's exceptional rate of gun violence. One um, is uh, our history of racism. Uh, violence is used and has been used as a method for white majorities to oppress um, uh, communities of color for centuries, and that continues today. Uh, second, um, intense poverty leads to violence. And as you have people who are in positions of economic desperation, um, often placed in those, those positions intentionally because of a system of racial subjugation that isolates poverty into certain places, violence increases. Um, but then the guns are a big factor as well. There are plenty of other places in the world that have um, histories of racial subjugation, have intense poverty, but don't have the levels of violence we do because it's so easy to get your hands on a gun. And you saw last year 
um, homicide rates across the country increased by 30%. Not coincidental that last year, uh, gun uh, sales increased by 40%. More guns that are out there, the more likely it is that an argument is going to turn deadly. So you've got to attack systemic racism. You've got to attack sort of economic desperation and America's gun laws if you want to do something about these rising levels of gun violence all around the country. I want to ask you about the last one that you mentioned, gun laws. Um, you know, since Sandy Hook and Parkland, there's been a significant change in, I think, the urgency of passing gun reform legislation. Um, the House has passed two gun reform bills, one that would expand background checks to include those purchasing weapons on the internet or through other now exempt venues like gun shows or private sales, and the second would um, increase the time allowed for background checks before a sale can take place. Um, those bills strike me as, I guess, pretty common sense and um, based Line. So I'm wondering what you think is the reason they haven't passed the Senate yet. It, this issue of guns is really remarkable. It has this reputation of being super controversial, a third rail. It's not. Uh, it's only controversial inside Washington. Out in the American public, there's very little that's um, that, that, that's less controversial. Ninety uh, percent of Americans, for instance, think that everybody should go through a background check. But even interventions like bans on assault weapons today have majority Republican support um, amongst voters in this country. So your question is the right one. If it's so popular, why is it so hard to get passed? And the reason is um, that the gun lobby um, has become um, incredibly important inside the Republican Party. So if you are a Republican that wants to get nominated for anything or renominated for anything, you um, believe, whether it's true or not, that you need the endorsement of the gun lobby because the Republican Party at this point is sort of just an anti-government party. There's, there's not a lot of other ideas they have other than how much they hate government. And the right of human beings to bear arms against the government is, and, and, and your belief in it is one of the most important ways that you can communicate how much you hate government. So we've got a problem just inside the Republican Party that we got to solve. We've got to figure out a way for them to be able to show how conservative they are or how much they hate government without them having to vote against 90 percent of their constituents. And, you know, we're going to work it really hard this year. We're working on a bipartisan compromise in the Senate as we speak that might be able to draw some Republican support. But it's hard so long as Republicans think that the gun lobby endorsement is so critical to their um, reelection and renomination prospects. Yeah. So, I mean, Jill and I, we totally agree with you that organizations like the NRA, I mean, they pose such a big threat in terms of lobbying Republican elected officials not to take action on this. But I'm wondering maybe more structural in the Senate, how big of a problem do you think the filibuster um, poses in passing not only those two bills, um, but also other bills that address um, gun violence? Well, the filibuster is the reason why we can't get this passed. There are 50 votes, more than 50 votes in the Senate right now for universal background checks. Um, there um, was more than 50 votes back in 2013 after Sandy Hook. Uh, that bill lost in 2013, the Background Checks Expansion Act, even though it got 54 votes in the Senate. So, you know, this to me is maybe the primary example of why the filibuster is so dangerous for democracy. You've got an issue where the American public has made up their mind, right? They have decided they want every gun purchase in this country to come with a background check. They have elected members of Congress majorities in the House of Representatives and the Senate that believe in that. They elected a president who believes in that. And yet they still can't get what they want. 
because they are required, the American public is required to elect a supermajority in the Senate at the exact same time that they have a majority in the House and a president who believes in the same thing in order to get something done. Our founding fathers never envisioned that it would be this hard in order to get legislative change enacted. Filibuster is a huge, I think, threat to democracy, but on this issue, it's the reason why the American people can't get what they want. So do you think the filibuster should get eliminated, reformed? Um, do you have any ideas on, on what the best way is to get rid of the filibuster, I guess, modify it, um, if that's what you're working on? I would start by reform. Um, for instance, I would require that members of the Senate who want to filibuster actually have to filibuster. I did it um, in 2016. I stood on the Senate floor for 15 hours because I was demanding votes on universal background checks. And I stood there on the Senate floor until my colleagues gave up and agreed to hold those votes. But that's not how the filibuster that we're talking about now works. Um, you don't actually have to talk for one minute on a Senate floor to block a bill from being passed. All you have to do is convince 39 other colleagues, total of 40, to vote against ending debate on a bill. And as long as you have that, you don't actually have to air your grievance at all. If you required those 40 people to actually stand on the floor sequentially and make their argument for days at a time, they would think twice. They would have to think to themselves, am I really willing to expose myself? Is my cause so popular and so just that I'm willing to stand on the floor for 15, 18 hours at a time? I was because I had 90% of the American public on my side. But the, my opponents might not be willing to filibuster a universal background checks bill if they actually had to filibuster. So the talking filibuster is a reform that wouldn't eliminate the ability to stop a bill, but would actually require you to do it in the broad daylight. It seems to me that that's a great idea, not only because it would allow people to make their arguments, but it would allow Americans to hear what the arguments are. And that, after all, is the purpose of filibuster, is to be able to express your point of view. Um, but I want to move to some of the voting rights issues that we're facing now, which also have a filibuster problem. Uh, there are two major bills awaiting Senate action the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And at the same time as the Senate is not doing anything, state houses across the country are passing extremely restrictive voting rights laws. And what I'd like to ask is, where do the two bills stand? Is there any hope or are there any revisions that might make those pass the Senate? What can be done? Oh, I, I support every element of the For the People Act, but it is an enormous piece of legislation, right? It, it was designed to sort of be the place where every democracy reform from redistricting to FEC reform to public financing of elections to mandatory absentee ballots would all find one home. Um, as much as I would love for all of that to pass, it doesn't need to in order for us to be able to protect people's right to vote. We can pass elements of the For the People Act and um, make enormous progress. That's what we're working on right now, trying to find the package of reforms that can get 50 votes in the Senate. I don't think there's any democracy reforms that are going to get Republican votes. So once again, we're back to the same question. We need the filibuster to be reformed uh, at the very least in order to get these passed. 
these state laws worry me they do because they are very deliberately trying to take away the ability to vote for poor people in communities of color but maybe what worries me more is that they are all in advancement of a theory that voter fraud is a huge problem the biggest problem facing america today that is a lie that is not true and what i really worry is that the big threat to democracy is maybe not necessarily the operational changes that each one of these laws makes on a state by state basis but the sort of oxygen that it gives to this argument that elections are invalid because what i worry is going to happen is that in 2024 2026 some republican legislature is just going to say listen i'm not seating um, this U.S. senator, or I'm not going to send the electors to vote for this presidential candidate because I believe that they lost the election because I believe there was voter fraud, even though I can't prove where it was or how it happened. So it's that that I think is most worrying to me and, and part of the reason why we have to use the For the People Act or whatever we pass, not just as a mechanism to change the laws that are being passed, but to change the impression that a lot of Americans have that voter fraud is something we have to spend a lot of time worrying about. So if Republicans were willing to listen, which so far they don't seem to be uh, expressing any interest in, but if they were, what arguments could and should be made um, to them about these bills and you know whatever arguments they have against them, how would you rebut those? Well, there's so many different pieces to the For the People Act, but I, I guess I just make a basic argument, which is that um, our democracy is supposed to be more important than your party. Um, and, and, and that doesn't seem to be the case today. Republicans seem to be willing to throw out democracy in order to get sort of their favorite candidate installed. Uh, many of them are willing to throw out the election results of 2020 in order to get Donald Trump a second term. Um, that's not America any longer, right? That's, that's some other country. If you believe that your political views are more important than the people of this country getting to decide for themselves. So I, I, I would just sort of, I, I guess I would try to elevate the level of threat that's posed to this nation if state after state continues to take away from people uh, the right to vote. And President Biden has been very vocal on this, and he's been very forceful in his rhetoric. Um, but there are many who don't think he has done everything due. I just came back from Memphis, where I had the opportunity to visit the National Civil Rights Museum, and I am now totally rededicated to voting rights. And I'm wondering, do you think President Biden has more that he can do? What is that that he could do? Well, I would obviously love for the president to be a forceful proponent of filibuster reform. Um, I think the president takes voting rights seriously. Um, I, I think he's working incredibly hard to build the case for um, the protection of our rights. Admittedly, he's got a lot of crises to deal with right now. So as we're facing a resurgent Delta variant and Republicans that are trying to undermine the CDC and an economy that still needs support and an eviction crisis. You know, President Biden has his hands full, as do most first-term Democratic presidents who end up cleaning up huge messes that are left behind by Republican presidents. 
So I think a critique can be made on probably every subject that President Biden isn't doing as much as the advocates on that particular issue would like. That's because he's only got 24 hours in a day. But it is true that if we want to make progress on voting rights, we do have to change the rules of the Senate. Um, and, you know, I, this is just the truth. The president has not sort of weighed in on this question in the way that many of us would would like thus far. I will continue to try to persuade the White House and President Biden that um, we can't make the progress we want to make if we don't change the rules here. We agree with you. Definitely, yeah. Um, on July 26th, you and your colleagues voted um, 67 to 32 to open a debate on uh, a $1 trillion traditional hard infrastructure bill that includes repairing roads, um, bridges, building passenger and freight rail, expanding broadband, and more. Um, this was a key procedural vote, not a vote on substance, but given that 17 Republican senators voted for it, do you think that this was a significant moment in getting closer to a final passage? Um, and then maybe also, um, just for time's sake, like draw like a timeline for our audience of like when you think um, we can expect a final vote and if um, this bill can pass on the merits. Yeah, we're talking on Tuesday, August 3rd. Um, we're hopeful to finish this bill this week um, because we have two jobs ahead of us um, before Congress takes some time off for August. Um, one is this bipartisan package. And as you mentioned, it's a trillion dollars. Some people would say 500 million because it's 500 billion, excuse me, 500 billion of new spending. Um, the rest of it is spending that was probably gonna happen regardless. It's really important. Um, it, it's gonna allocate a ton of money to modernize our electric grid so that we can do more renewable energy, electric charging stations, money to repair roads and bridges. Um, but given the gravity of the sort of crisis faced by most American families, it's not good enough. So we're going to pass a second bill. The second bill will probably only have Democratic votes, but that will invest in a lot of human infrastructure, right? Reducing the cost of, of, of child care, uh, for instance, increasing the guarantee of early childhood education, improving Medicare so that it covers dental and hearing and vision. Um, so we need to do both of those bills, the, the concrete infrastructure and the human infrastructure if we actually want to switch this sort of balance of power in the country today where the billionaires seem to get everything and regular folks seem to get nothing. We're gonna to try to flip that all this summer, um, but it's gonna take two acts of Congress to get it done. Hopefully we'll get the concrete infrastructure bill done this week, uh, in the Senate at least, and then we'll move on to that human infrastructure bill and try to get the first step on that bill done um, in early to mid-August. So I want to follow up on that particular bill, the uh, 3.5 trillion human infrastructure package that addresses issues that are very important, uh, medical care, health care, child care. Um, it's part of the American Jobs Act, too, in the sense of it will create jobs, but it has no support from Republicans. And so I want to talk about whether there's any precedent for this type of infrastructure uh, being passed and how we can bring Republicans to support this bill. How do we answer their key arguments against it, uh, that it's too much money, um, number one, and that it doesn't fall within the scope of infrastructure? Well, it's ridiculous for Republicans to argue that this is too much money because they passed in 2017 a $4 trillion tax cut. 80% of that money was going to the richest 1% of Americans, huge tax cuts for corporations, billionaires. 
Um, and they didn't pay for any of that. None of that was offset by spending decreases somewhere else or tax increases somewhere else. Our intention is to pay for all the investments we're making in middle-class families. And guess what? We're gonna pay for that by increasing taxes on billionaires and corporations. We're basically gonna say, listen, if you have X amount of money to spend right now, would you rather spend it on sending Jeff Bezos to space? Or would you rather spend it on making sure that more kids in this country can go to a quality childcare program and their parents aren't bankrupted because they choose to give that experience to their child and work at the same time. So we are gonna pay for our investment in middle-class families and we're gonna pay for it by asking millionaires, billionaires and corporations to do a little bit more. I think it'll be wildly popular as opposed to their massive tax break for the wealthy, which was not. How do we convince Republicans to sort of change their entire economic orthodoxy and decide to give up on trickle-down economics and instead invest in sort of bottom-up and middle-out economics? I, I, I would like to say that there's a potential for that kind of conversion to take place, but unlikely. It is probably going to be the case that we're going to have to pass that second package, taking power away from billionaires, giving it to regular people with 50 Democratic votes. I know we have a lot more questions on that, but we're running out of time. So, Victor, why don't you ask the last question? Yeah, so it's because this is an intergenerational politics and we try to reach young people of all, or people of all generations, I'm wondering if you can give us um, young people um, maybe some advice on why you think it's important for us to get involved in politics. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, weave in your personal story about um, why it's so important for you for uh, young people to get involved. Yeah, I mean, listen, I started out as a young activist. I was um, working in sort of issue advocacy and working on campaigns as uh, a teenager. And, um, you know, I just became addicted to this idea that the most impactful people in America today are young people. And I know this is an intergenerational podcast, but I will make the pitch here that there is no great social change movement in the history of this country that wasn't led by young people. Um, whether it be the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the marriage equality movement, or now the uh, anti-gun violence movement, um, it, it is young people that get paid attention to. Uh, and I found that when I first ran for office. I was 24 years old. I ran for the state legislature in Connecticut. I ran against a long-term incumbent that to most people seemed unbeatable. But what I realized as I was going around knocking on doors, pitching my candidacy, was that people were paying more attention to me because I was young. They'd never seen somebody in their early 20s decide to run for the state legislature, at least in this town. Today, it's in Connecticut, it's a little bit more normal. But um, young people have this special power in that there's moral authority that's attached to young people that's unique, but also they can get attention um, in a way that, you know, us middle-aged candidates have a little bit uh, harder time uh, attracting. So I think that means there's a responsibility uh, to being young um, and leading. Uh, and it's a pitch that I continue to make. I'm still considered young in the United States Senate because, um, you know, of the average age of the institution. Uh, but uh, it's a pitch that I make to young people all the time because I saw it myself. I saw the power that I could have, you know, when I was young and, and coming up in politics in Connecticut. Well, this has been such a perfect podcast, and we definitely need to have you back, but you know, we know that you have a busy schedule, and um, we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Victor. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate having me Thank on. Thank you, Senator. Victor, I loved talking to Senator Murphy. He is so clear-spoken and so um, persuasive on the issues that he cares so deeply about. What did you think? 
I really loved it. I've seen a lot of Chris Murphy on Twitter, but I've never been able to talk to him, and it was a real honor and delight. And what I found really interesting, and maybe we can spend the chit-chat today to talk about just maybe youth representation in politics and also kind of tie that into um, his core issues, which is gun safety and also filibuster reform and voting rights. But, um, you know, there was this one thing that he said at the end, which was, you know, if you look at history, you know, young people are really at the forefront of change. And you know, I know that's true for my generation with racial justice, with climate change, gun safety. I'm wondering what it was like for, for your generation and, and kind of what your involvement was in, in, in uh, politics when you were young um, and, and what that era was like. My generation, of course, was the really bold activist generation. Um, the Vietnam War was one of our key issues, and civil rights was the other issue. And from the time I started college um, until, well, until today, <laughs> when I'm no longer the young generation, not even close, um, I have been involved in those issues. Uh, I protested the war. I attended candlelight vigils, uh, even when I was already uh, an attorney at the Department of Justice, knowing that my job might be at stake for protesting the government that I worked for. Um, luckily, nothing ever happened to me, but I was willing to take that risk because I felt that the issue was so important. And from the time of college, I was very involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, I belonged to a lot of organizations. Um, the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, um, and was the reason I actually went to law school was a result of taking a political science class about constitutional law so that I could make better arguments in favor of changing our civil rights laws. And as I mentioned uh, to Senator Murphy, I just came back from seeing the Nationals Museum, and I am so rededicated to going back to fighting for civil rights in this country, and particularly voting rights, one of the things I noticed in the museum was a chart that showed how many uh, minority voters were registered right after the Civil War, War ended. And then what happened when Jim Crow laws passed, and so you had this huge climb in registration, and then you had a total drop-off. And we haven't recovered from those Jim Crow, law, Jim Crow laws, and we must. We must stop the suppression that is going on now, and we must get the two bills that are pending in the U.S. Senate passed, and we must get elected people in the House and Senate in every state so that the suppressive bills are no longer threatening our democracy. I completely agree with you, and I think it's striking how, you know, the Civil Rights Museum and, and, and your experience during that, and also kind of looking back at that era, how a lot of the voting restricting laws are, are being repeated by state legislatures around the country, and it feels like we're not making progress. It feels like we're kind of going in the other direction because it is predicated on this big lie, like uh, like uh, Senator Murphy said. And, you know, he, he said something about the filibuster, and we've talked a lot, I know, on this show about filibuster, how to reform it, you know, whether we should eliminate it, what the best way to approach it is. And, and one of the things I thought was interesting was he said that in order to actually, you know, give a speech, you have to say something that's related to the topic. And I think that's a pretty interesting proposal or modification to the filibuster. Um, I know there, there's other proposals out there, but I, I think that was a pretty persuasive one. And especially now when, when we, like we said on the podcast, we have to get 
for the People Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. It is a good first step. I hope it would work and that it could be the only step necessary. I am not sure that it will work, but that was the way it was originally. You had to talk about the issue. And the reason that the filibuster exists is so that the point of a minority can be made and heard. But no one's making any arguments during filibuster. There's just silence, and that is wrong. And so I think that our guest today was terrific on all the issues we raised. And I know we had so many more questions for him. I hope he'll come back and that we can explore all of these issues uh, in more depth, both the gun laws and the civil rights laws and the voting rights. Uh, and I'm just very glad we had this opportunity today and thank our audience for being with us on this journey. I join Jill in thanking you for listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else, and you tune into our next episode next week.